Welcome again to the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. I'm Enrique Serna. So we are going to continue to welcome those who seek refuge from persecution, regardless of where they come from and regardless of what religion they practice. And I think that is an important American attribute. And we also believe that we should make sure that we have the most vigorous screening, given the nature of our concerns. It is my belief that this is one of many moments where our national character is tested, and we should remain true to our fundamental values of being a beacon, and that light on the Statue of Liberty is still shining, and we ought to keep it shining throughout this crisis. That was Washington Governor Jay Ensley as he addressed security concerns related to refugee resettlement. The governor has made it clear that Washington state will welcome refugees from war-torn countries such as Syria, as he believes that background checks will help to minimize whatever risks the refugees may pose. In response, 14 state Senate Republicans sent a letter to the governor asking him to ensure that Syrian refugees are properly vetted before the state agrees to accept them. Some 31 governors, nearly all Republicans, say they will take steps to prevent Syrian refugees from being resettled in their states. In Congress, the House voted overwhelmingly to impose stringent new screening procedures on the Syrian refugees seeking resettlement. And as we speak, the Senate has yet to take up the legislation. President Obama has promised a veto, saying all of this would undermine America's ability to build a coalition against the security threats in Syria. The president has also promised to go forward with resettlement of Syrian refugees next year. Of course, this comes in the aftermath of the Paris terrorist attacks and growing security concerns about extremists and the impact on Muslim communities in the U.S. Joining me now to share their perspectives on all of this is former Washington Governor Dan Evans, who in the mid-70s welcomed Vietnamese refugees to Washington State. Also here is Bob Johnson, Executive Director, U.S. Programs in Seattle for the International Rescue Committee, and Arsalan Bukhari, Executive Director of the Washington State Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Gentlemen, good to have you all here. Well, let's start with you, Governor Evans. You were back in the 70s dealing with an issue somewhat similar in the fact that uh, you opened the door for Vietnamese refugees to come here. I guess different in the case that it wasn't the terrorism that we are experiencing now, and, and particularly in Paris. But how do you see this from, from what has happened recently? Well, I think they're two vastly different situations. Uh, there really wasn't much of any concern about terrorism in those days. It was, uh, to the degree there was opposition, it was opposition to having people settle in, in your state. Interestingly enough, the biggest opposition we had right at the beginning was from Governor Jerry Brown, who then was governor and is again governor of California, who threatened to try to keep the airplanes from even landing in California. And that's part of what uh, triggered our uh, decision to go down there and invite them to come to the state of Washington, where they've been since a huge positive impact uh, on the state with their successes. But uh, I think today is quite different from what existed then. What do you think of uh, what Governor Inslee has said about this? Well, uh, I think that, uh, you know, what he has said and what uh, 
the Republican senators in the state have said aren't very far apart. Uh, the whole question is whether there is proper vetting or proper uh, security uh, to ensure that those who come truly are the refugees that we want to accept and want to welcome. Do you think uh, there has been some hysteria about all this? I don't think it's hysteria. I think that there is deep concern because of uh, what has been happening and, of course, uh, most recently, the uh, terrorist attacks in Paris, which came as a real surprise to France uh, and came as a real shock to the United States. Bob Johnson, uh, how do you see all of this? Well, I, I see several problems. One, there has been a very careful vetting of all refugees since 2002 when 9-11 hit, and um, there's a very comprehensive background check for any refugee coming here, even more so for those coming from Muslim countries. So. Uh, you know, saying that there's not adequate security checking already in place, I think, is false. I think it would be hard to improve on that, for one thing. Um, you know, the other thing is I, I do see a little bit of what happened post-1975 and that I was in California at the time and saw this uh, almost different though, opposition based on, you know, the fact that we felt we lost the war or something, that, uh, you know, Jerry Brown being very liberal, it was very sort of hard to understand why he wouldn't allow them to come. And the only thing I could conclude is he uh, didn't want to get involved in sort of that process of losing the war and being against it to begin with. So, you know, again, I agree with the governor that it's very different. Uh, but from the perspective of receiving refugees, somewhat the same. And the fact that Washington got involved early on and actually at one point became a resettlement agency of his own, um, I think that was commendable. And I think that really encouraged other states to get involved, including the state of Iowa that did much the same thing. So, uh, and then agencies like ours kind of followed that pattern and moved into Seattle in 1976 when state was getting out of the business and we were beginning to ramp up and get more into it. So, you know, the fact now we have an infrastructure in place that's been dealing with all refugees for many years and including some Syrians last year, not a large number, but um, I think the thing that most people don't understand is we're not taking Syrians from Europe. We're taking them from refugee camps in the Middle East, where many of them have been in very squalid conditions for up to four years. And um, it takes at least two years to get through this vetting process and the whole procedure. So it's not like they're going to land on the shores tomorrow, as uh, Donald Trump would say. We're being flooded with Syrian refugees. And so I think there's a lot of not only misperceptions, but I think there is a certain amount of hype going on and, you know, feeding in the election hysteria as well. It, you know, if you can outdo the other candidate, maybe we'll get more votes. Arsalan, uh, for your community, I know that uh, there was a, a letter that was written uh, by a fellow named Ather Halim. Uh, tell me about that. State Senator Jay Rodney made some really unfortunate comments on his personal Facebook page. Uh, he made comments about American Muslims. Um, I'd rather not repeat them, but what I'll say about them is they were not just dangerous, they were, they were false. Uh, American Muslims are part and parcel of our society. Uh, between 10 to 20,000 American Muslims serve honorably in our uh, armed forces today, according to the DOD. Um, many more serve every day as public school teachers and nurses and others. 
Um, and what Jay Rodney's comments really did, the, re uh, the real human impact of them were, was that there's hundreds of children, American Muslim children and those who perceive, uh, who look Muslim, growing up in his own district. And the message that sort of conversation sent to those kids is that they're somehow less than and that they don't have the right to grow up with the same hopes and dreams as every other young, young American. When he as a leader should really be doing the opposite, we're hoping that he will come forward after he, he meets with those families um, to affirm that those children also have the same right to the same hopes and dreams as every other young American and that those American Muslim families that are raising their children in his own district um, are just as American as everyone else. Do you feel that all of this is just for the, the Muslim community is creating just misunderstandings? Right. It's based, well, uh, again, it's far removed um, from the facts on the ground. So uh, according to Gallup poll and Pew Research study, and really every study known to mankind, the American Muslim community is mainstream. Um, according to the Gallup poll, it, it exemplifies um, diversity and potential. It found, the Gallup poll uh, found that American Muslim women are the second highest educated group of women in the U.S. Um, it also found uh, many more things. American Muslims are the second highest, uh, most racially diverse uh, community in the country. Um, as I mentioned, according to the DOD itself, 10 to 20,000 American Muslims serve honorably today uh, in the U.S. Armed Forces. So this is a community that's serving, that's productive, that is, um, you know, what America is all about. Obviously, there's concerns about terrorism sure. in this country, um, and especially what's happened, you know, in Europe, and which is, you know, reasonable for people to be concerned about this. Um, but how do we approach this so that we we really um, bring some reasonable thinking to it, Governor? Well, I think it's important to, uh, you know, to really lay out what is being done and how it's being done as, in terms of security is concerned. You know, that's the that's the one thing that I think that uh, a good many Americans are concerned about, probably with, uh, with good reason. They don't know exactly what is going on. They don't know what the uh, uh, assurances are, and they see what's happened in other countries, and that obviously does concern them, and it should. And so I think that the next important thing that needs to be done is to really very publicly and in, in some detail really show that there's uh, sufficient vetting to make sure that all those concerns go away. And, and what are we talking about, I guess, when it comes to vetting? Bob? Well, I mean, there's a 14-step process for a refugee <clears throat> to get through the whole system and actually arrive in the U.S. Starts with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees mm -hmm. determining refugee status to begin with and then referring them to the various country programs, which are 33 countries in all and three biggest being U.S., Australia, and Canada, um, and then each country has their own standards they set in place for background screening. And so, again, since 9-11, America has set a large number of background checks into the process and added more. Uh, one of the problems is that those background checks expire somewhere along the way in that two-year period and they have to be repeated, and sometimes refugees will be delayed because of the expiring clearances from different sides. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's available as a document that you can see the list of those background checks. Uh, and I'm not going to go into detail how they do them, but again, you know, anti-terrorism federal agencies have a lot of data, they have a lot of names, they have a lot of information on folks, and they run them through that. Um, and again, it's not new. It's been in place since 9-11. It's um, actually 9-11 stopped the flow almost completely and only restored it for those refugees not coming from Muslim countries during those first two years. So I think 
governor is correct. The more information needs to be put out there. Sure. People just aren't aware of all of that. Exactly. But I think people actually have to, um, you know, make it credible because I've seen the information being put out there and people say that's not true mm -hmm. or they don't believe it. And so you always have some people like that. But unfortunately, I don't think that represents the majority at all. No, I, I don't. Um, I think the other thing that you referenced, the uh, contribution of refugees to America, you know, very positive over the years. The <clears> fact <throat> that Syrian Americans have been in this country for over 100 years, they're not new. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Abdul, even Steve Jobs, <coughs> they all have a Syrian background. And so I, I think this sort of fear of refugees escaping from ISIS and escaping from the government of Syria, you know, that's really misdirected. They're escaping the same things we're afraid of. They're escaping ISIS and in a way we are trying to escape them too. So I think we hold something in common with Syrian refugees. I mean, they are definitely being scapegoated in this situation. Arsalan, for you? Well, I think uh, I agree. I think some transparency um, and putting that out there, maybe a conversation based on facts is the thing what we need. Um, there's a lot of commentary, a lot of personal opinions being floated around and a fact-based conversation based on an outline perhaps of the, of the measures that are taken when someone comes in here would be more productive and more informative for the American public. Of the refugees in Washington State, where do they, where do they come from the most? The well, ironically, last year in Washington State, the majority of refugees came from the Ukraine. Yeah. You know, something we don't really see much anymore because mm -hmm. it's been off the map for a few months. <clears> but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, again, the backlog develops, and when refugees arrive is not necessarily when the issue is occurring. So, you know, Syrian refugees have fled for over four years, and very few have actually arrived yet. Less than 2,000 in the United States in the last four years have arrived. In Washington State, we've had 25 in the last federal fiscal year. So it's not an overwhelming number. Every family that I've seen has children, most of whom need medical attention. And that's the reason they're selected to go first. So, you know, we're not taking sort of draft age young men with some sort of potential to harm the country. We're taking Middle-class families that lost everything and have fled to a refugee camp, lived in terrible conditions, have been thoroughly background screened, and then very slowly will arrive. It's not like they're going to be an overwhelming number. It's not like they're going to dominate a community. You know, uh, many of them are secular Muslims, you know, and so you're not bringing a potential threat, basically. And that's a very different situation than in Vietnam, where we had thousands come very quickly. Right. Uh, but the thing that made me proud was that in, in that situation, every single family that came had a local sponsoring family. Mm -hmm. And that sponsoring family sometimes would take them into their homes for months right. until they got settled, provide them guidance and help. And it really made for a very, uh, you know, very smooth transition for those uh, refugees who, for the most part, didn't spend very long needing the help of government or anything else. They became independent and contributing citizens very quickly. So how do we, I guess, communicate to people about the process, you know, the, the facts? Because it seems right now we, it, it, it seems to be we're overwhelmed by headlines that are very negative. Well, I think the first state, uh, the first process will be if the Senate actually delves into this in a rational way. And, you know, from what I've heard, the Senate hearings are going to be more looking at those things. What are the background checks? What are the security measures being taken? And what is the process? And sort of slowing it down so it's not a, you know, rush to get something through the House and let's see if we can gang on. 
So I, I think that's the first step, is to get legitimate information from the federal government as to what they are actually doing, and to make sure that that gets into the news and that people understand the process so it's not done quickly. Because, you know, I think we, we've learned from history that you do things quickly in the, in the name of national security, and you end up apologizing for all of that later, you know, Executive Order 9066 during World War II. You know, we took very loyal Americans and we put them in internment camps. Uh, we forget it wasn't just you know, Japanese. And some have tried to relate that to this situation, which I think is totally different. No, I think it's different, uh, kind but of I think situation. But, yeah, uh, but I disagree. I think that the rush to judgment based on national security is the thing in common mm -hmm. that you know you should learn from history, and apparently we didn't. That again, national security is very important, and everybody supports that. But you need to look at the real risk, not the imagined risk, which I think is happening now. Well, Governor, you used to be a senator. Do you, do you see this process actually uh, maybe slowing down and being vetted more clearly once it gets to the Senate? Well, you know, traditionally, going clear back to our founding fathers, that's, that's what they said the Senate was for, mm -hmm. to slow things down, uh, to keep the uh, rush to judgment of the House of Representatives uh, at bay for a time. And I think the Senate will engage in um, the kinds of hearings, and certainly they will be public, that will give us a lot more information and I think will calm things down somewhat. Are you Very considerably, in fact. Are, are, are you disturbed at all by, I guess, the way some of the presidential candidates have handled this? Well, presidential candidates are always um, reacting immediately and unfortunately the press writes down everything they say, uh, which is... Uh, uh, but isn't that know, our job? Well, sure, of course. But uh, I think it's the job also to kind of put your tongue in cheek and say, you know, look, this is, you know, this is silly season as far as politics is concerned. We have a 24-hour news cycle these days. You no, know, we have about a two-minute news cycle. Well, that too. Uh, and that's uh, one of the problems because the news cycle doesn't allow for really checking and, uh, and factual information getting to people. And that's, I think, one of our problems today as citizens. But the, that's that's a very good point. But then, uh, don't you agree that does that add to all of this? Because it seems like again, you got to fill the time. I've been there, so I know how that that's no, sure. like. And no, so sure. no. um, then we have this kind of building uh, outrageousness almost, mm -hmm. and then hysteria that comes about uh, because of the news cycle, because of what some of the candidates say. Oh well, sure, but. You know, of all of the candidates on that side, maybe I don't know how many are left now, a dozen or more, <clears throat> it's easy to pick the most outrageous. And so that's what gets to the headlines. There are just as many who are sensible, saying good things and have good policies. They never get the press. Very true. You know, it's the old, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing uh, that I'm afraid that we're too, uh, you know, that's too much of what goes on today. But then that, does that do a disservice to your community, Arsalan? I think it does a disservice sure. to all Americans. I think, you know, the core sort of job of, the, of, of journalism is to um, ensure that the concept of the U.S. Constitution and self-governance goes on for generations um, through accurate, you know, comprehensive, uh, informative coverage um, of things that affect our lives. So I think the, the job is for um, candidates to be responsible in their speech, to be fact-based. Um, and you know, uh, even if they, even if there is a motive for more votes, not pander to those who maybe want to divide us, right? Um, so, so their job is to give a vision for unity for our nation. That's really, I think, what I'm, what I'm looking for from candidates is to show us how, how are you going to divide our, uh, 
how are you going to unite our nation at a time when you're so divided across partisan lines, religious, racial, ethnic lines. Um, I think that's what the American people should be looking for in candidates, and that's what they should be telling us. Um, and the press should be uh, asking hard questions. You know, when, when people make, make claims about, let's say, American Muslims, um, the press should be asking fact-based questions. Well, when candidates uh, make outlandish remarks, um, the press should know that, you know, uh, a significant portion of our U.S. armed forces um, have American Muslims serving honorably in them. 10 to 20,000 is a significant number, uh, and many more things. And so when candidates make comments that may be false, uh, they should be questioned, um, and that information after questions have been asked should be reported to the American public, not those claims um, that are unvetted and then that can mislead the public and cause hysteria and paranoia. What are you hearing in your community? Is there fear? Well. You can't blame moms uh, who go, go grocery shopping out there and get stares or sometimes even get attacked, as we have seen uh, too often just recently in the last couple of days uh, nationwide, or kids who get called names, um, often who are Muslims themselves or often who are seen as Muslims. So we get complaints from uh, Sikh, Latino, African-American, Hindu community members who are called anti-Muslim slurs because someone thought they were Muslim. Um, and we've, we're getting hate crime reports, um, care offices nationwide, are hearing reports um, on average once a day every day uh, from somewhere across the nation to some care office in the nation. Once a day every day. Um, th these are reported cases. So when people are experiencing these sorts of things in everyday life, um, again, people who are Muslims and those who are not Muslims but are perceived as such, um, I don't blame them for feeling concerned about their safety and their future of their kids. Uh, and that's what we're hearing from parents. Uh, parents are telling us they are concerned about the future of their kids. Um, they are concerned whether their kids can grow up to be full Americans and be practicing Muslims um, and whether society will accept them as they are. What's the challenge for the work you do, Bob? Well, actually, our offices receive threats, too. Uh, we received um, threats by phone on our Facebook pages and so forth and actually threatened staff individually. Um, you know, again, just for being involved in refugee resettlement, which is a humanitarian effort. Uh, it's not something we're used to, uh, receiving threats. I mean, we're trying to do the right thing, and we're hoping for calls. And we've had a lot of calls offering help, people wanting to donate either, you know, financially assist the office or donate goods. Some, many people, in fact, have offered what you suggested happened before, that uh, they would be willing to take a family into their house. And so that's the positive side, but it's very demoralizing, I think, to some staff to have a death threat based on, you know, your humanitarian work. But that, and interestingly enough, uh, you know, in spite of the now historical positive view of Vietnamese resettlement, there were threats to our office and others at that time, too. So there, there's always a fringe of people who, for whatever reasons, are just, uh, you know, anti, they're anti-people almost. Yeah, and They're just exactly. uh, strange and you've got to deal with them. So I guess I come back to that question again of, of what do we do to try to tone down the hysteria to bring some uh, understanding of where we're at with all of this? Yeah, again, you're talking how do we, or meaning the press. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the press I has. All of us. I'm not well, I think the press. conversation has to start, you know, what is refugee resettlement? I think most yeah. people don't even know how it works. Explain it. Well, in five minutes or less, right? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a complicated <clears throat> process, and I've been doing it for 39 years, and I don't completely understand it. But um, but that's probably part of the problem is that people don't understand it. Yeah, and I agree. I, that should be part of the discussion taking place, particularly in the Senate, because they, um, they have people 
at the national level at you know the State Department. They can explain it very carefully. And uh, actually, Ann Richard, who's the I think Deputy Secretary, was here a week ago in Seattle and talked about these issues. But you know, refugee resettlement, as I tried to say before, starts with the UNHCR designating somebody as a refugee and and you know sort of acknowledging they have fled their country to avoid persecution. And uh, then it begins with sort of a long process of each country going through their own procedures in terms of bringing to either the United States or some of the other countries. Um, I think what we're seeing is the misunderstanding that, you know, Europe is seeing people literally landing on their shore, walking across other countries, and then ending up in large numbers in, say, Germany or Scandinavia. And there seems to be some understanding that, that happens here, and yet, you know, if you think about it, we're kind of an island nation, and people can't get here by small boat, other than the Cubans. And, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't happen that way here. We don't receive refugees directly to this country and then have to deal with it. You know, they're carefully processed a long time before they get here. Um, we actually have a number of refugees who are canceled from their flights because they want to do another check. Now, for us, that's a problem because then we've rented the apartment, we're ready to receive them, and we have to start over again. And it might be another three or six months before they get through that process again. Um, I think the other thing to remember, you know, if we're um, looking at somebody that's concerned for our security, those refugees from the same community are very much concerned. They certainly don't want to see ISIS in their community. They certainly don't want to see terrorists in their community. So they're the ones that are going to be, if they can, report. And it's happened in the past. We had, uh, I don't know if you remember this in the newspapers, we had a uh, suspected Khmer Rouge member in the Cambodian community. And the Cambodian community came out and identified him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what they know the culture, they know who people are. And so they're, in some ways, the Syrian refugees are our best protection. They're the ones that are going to blow the whistle first. And I think that, th remember, this is the end result of, <clears throat> of a lot of publicity over months talking about the growth of ISIS and uh, all of its problems, and then followed by the tragedy in Paris. And you can understand why people are nervous as they can be and want to be reassured. And I think that's the next thing that's got to happen. Uh, and I think when that does happen, and hopefully it will happen with the series, uh, starting right now with a series of hearings in the Senate to calm people down, to get more information um, you know, outside to them. And then we can do, I think, the, a responsible and hopefully welcoming job of those refugees who do need help. One thing to mention about American Muslims is uh, they're part and parcel of, our, our, of mainstream society. Um, you know, I mentioned the figure about 10 to 20,000 American Muslims in the armed forces. Um, one in 10 Muslim households has a medical doctor. So these are people who are literally saving lives. Uh, one interesting fact I found out about Tri-Cities is that um, they have about 10 or so Syrian-American doctors. Um, many of them are cardiologists. And with an aging population, they're literally saving lives every day with their work. Um, so that's the community that, you know, um, that is here in America uh, as, as Muslims. Um, and there are teachers, you know, nurturing the, uh, the next generation. Um, and I think the best um, we can hope for is for, for these American Muslims to really be empowered uh, to do the best work they can in, in whatever uh, field they're in, and for, for society at large to recognize those accomplishments and those contributions. And do you see that that's part of uh, what your job is and what you face right now in trying to get people to understand who, 
who is in the Muslim community? Who who are they? Absolutely. I mean, part of CARE's work is to empower the average American Muslim, uh, those teachers that I meet every day and those um, military officers and others, uh, to tell their story, empower them on how to tell their story, and then connect them with the press, with local reporters um, who can feature them in, in, in daily reports when they talk about, for example, the real estate market, um, having an award-winning real estate agent in Redmond who happens to be an American Muslim uh, comment on the market or to, when, they're, when they have a report on, you know, how to prevent heart attacks. <clears throat> You've got experts across our state, um, one, in fact, who's flown all around central and eastern Washington doing these life-saving surgeries because of his expertise. Uh, so there are those gems in our community ac across our state, across the country, um, and our job is to empower them to tell their story and to be featured as uh, experts in, these, in the areas in which they are experts. Well, gentlemen, uh, I guess we have a lot of work yet to do as far as informing the public, but I, I, I suppose this is just a start. Well, my thanks to former Governor Dan Evans, also to Bob Johnson of the International Rescue Committee, and Arsalan Bukhari of the Washington State Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And that's all for this edition of the KCTS 9 Digital Studios podcast. I'm Enrique Serna. We'll talk more next time.